0: I've given a few talks uh, since I have been here touching on this theme of not-self, not-self, and how the Buddha pointed out that taking anything, anything whatsoever to be I, me, or mine, really was looking at things in a way that wasn't functional and wasn't realistic. This conditional arising that the Buddha points to, the uncontrollability of phenomenon, is something that's really key to his understanding and conducive to liberation of mind. So if we understand this point then we don't suffer unnecessarily from delusion and all the problems that flow from it when we try to take ownership of conditioned experience under circumstances where we don't actually have control. And the Buddha of course said, all conditioned things share three characteristics. The first of these is anicca, or impermanence. The second of these is uh, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. And the third of these is uh, anatta, uh, not-self, or non-self. Therefore, the wise relationship to anything that we can experience which is a conditional arising, is non-clinging. Now having said that, and reiterated it again tonight, let's be realistic about some things too. So, even though there's no fixed or governing or permanent kind of self, we do have personal patterns of conditioning and expression, right? So people are distinguishable one from another. We have a lot in common, you know, genetically as human beings. If you look at things, even things that seem to be, you know, visually significant differences like race, when you really look at it on a genetic level, it's like there's there's really nothing much to it. And yet we make huge social distinctions out of such things, right? But we basically all have uh, quite a similar structure to to our nervous system. We've all got the six sense doors. Uh, For most people, they operate in a kind of standard, within a standard kind of range. Sometimes maybe not so much. Sometimes there are challenges there are differences which, which can create a significant variation in experience. But within this human range, we're generally both similar and unique. So even though we have individual mind streams, patterns of thought and tendencies, our conditioning, like our conditions, overlap with those of others. But there's uniqueness to us as well. I can remember uh, once asking my mother, who has four children, what was the most surprising thing uh, uh, about being a mother? But what was most surprising to her when she had that role? So I kind of expected she might say, "Well, having a kid that would ask <laughs> a question like that <laughs> is pretty surprising." But she didn't say that. So, but she did say um, that was what was most noticeable to her and unexpected was how different each of the four of us was from the other. You know, thinking, okay, same mother, same father. You know, born in a different year, but you know, the general home environment was was pretty pretty similar um, but she said y- you were each totally different from each other I said well what do you mean she said well an example was when your sister was a toddler you know I would let her go out into the fenced backyard and I'd say well stay in stay in the yard and you know and I'd go I'd go back out there um, you know, in, in a bit of time just to see what was going on while I was making lunch or something. And there she would be. She'd be sitting there in the sandbox and she'd be playing and she'd be, you know, amusing herself and uh, seemingly content. She said, and then when I had you, <coughs> meaning me, uh, you know, I'd say go out in the backyard and stay in the yard and, you know, and I would look out the window in 10 minutes and the gate would be open and you would be like way down the block. <laughs> so I guess that would be the investigative <laughs> factor at work or something. <clears throat> but she said, um, yeah, seemingly the same fa- same uh, conditions going into the parenting and yet, child is behaving in quite a different way. And so, this is something that I've seen in teaching as well. One of the most interesting things to me when I started teaching and started having practice meetings with people was how uh, completely different each one of you is to the other. I don't. I don't mean like a little different. I mean that the ho- the whole flavor, or the whole uh, atmosphere, the whole taste of the interaction, is is quite unique from person to person. You know, for some people, it it can be okay. This is brought forward. This is how it feels in the room. For somebody else, it could be. Oh, this is like, now we're talking about ideas, and it feels like this for this person. Okay, now this is about emotions, and it feels like this. Uh, uh, Now we're into practical problem solving, and it feels like this. Um, This person is uh, kind of inward and uh, uh, is not finding many words, You know, this person is very voluble and is talking on at length about something. Completely different. You're all completely different. And the felt sense in the practice meetings is very different. So we are each uniquely ourselves. And it's also true that as unique as our personal uh, mandala is in its expression there are some common categories of human conditioning and uh, resultant tendencies that can be interesting and beneficial to know about. So another way you could put this is well we all suffer from uh, greed, aversion, and delusion but we have different ways of expressing that delusion. So we generally experience uh, more of one of these particular patterns or they're sometimes called poisons (coughs) in Buddhist uh, psychology or teaching than from uh, the other two. So another way of saying this is uh, even though we all experience greed, aversion and delusion, we tend to be Uh, specialists in one of these right so craving or aversion or delusion Um, so I'm mentioning this because often it is the case that we claim this conditioned pattern of suffering as an identity you know uh you may have had the thought yourself, for instance, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bad-tempered person, or I, I'm just aversive, or uh, I'm, a, I'm a craving type, or uh, I'm a deluded, a deluded type. I'm confused and not sure of anything, or I'm greedy and I can never get enough of things, or uh, I'm aversive and uh, my mind complains, whinges all the time. So even though there may be truth in some of these statements, the way they're framed really needs to be considered. Because if we're framing these tendencies of mind that come up in practice as as well as in daily life uh, in an identity-claiming way, we're probably not being particularly skillful. So if there's a lot of eyeing in relationship to this, um, and then we take possession of this conditioning from this perspective, certain things follow. And the first of these is there it can be a kind of eternalism, as if this conditioning is an identity central to, to who we are and that's just the way that it is. But we should question whether that is really true. Because while these conditioned tendencies of mind can last a long time, or even a lifetime, these tendencies can actually be worked with in ways which liberate them from them from delusion and thus make them harmless. So each of these tendencies of mind actually has an upside to it, or a potential upside to it, when the mind is developed, when bhavana has occurred. And this particular insight is probably the most developed in Vajrayana Buddhism, but it's present in all schools of Buddhism as part of the understanding of how uh, the development of wisdom uh, can unfold in each of these types. So, let's take a look at these three different tendencies and how they often manifest. So, if you're interested in this uh, on a detailed level, one resource for you would be the Vasudhimaga, which is a a Buddhist text that was composed about 1600 years ago by a monk named Buddhaghosa. And at the time he took or brought together many of the existing uh, practices and information about practices and he, he put them together in one manual that is quite long and quite detailed and uh, somewhat arcane in particular places, but nevertheless It's got a lot of really interesting and beneficial things in it as well. So Buddhaghosa discusses the the three personality types in the course of advising what best meditation object to use in the course of cultivating concentration in particular. So there's a a good amount of discussion in there about what kind of casina meaning uh, visual object, round visual object that each of these types should use and things like that. But also some other things in there that are interesting and kind of amusing about, for instance, uh, what kind of dwelling would be best for one uh, of a particular temperament. So, for instance, one of the things that he says... Uh, is that people who are of a uh, uh craving kind of temperament people who have that as their dominant <clears throat> source of suffering should practice in a hovel, you know a really run down kind of place where the doors are crooked and the you know the <laughs> curtains are falling <laughs> off the windows. <laughs> And that kind of thing, while those of us who have a more aversive temperament should practice in a place that is uh beautiful and uh, uh, very nice and you know uh, uh, supports non irritation because the place is lovely, and there's no curtains hanging off the windows <laughs> to complain about. <clears throat> so I can remember talking about this with a friend of mine who's a, a self-described greed type and, and talking about these, these different recommendations in terms of ideal practice settings. And I said, well, you know, I'm an aversive type, so I am best in an, a lovely, beautiful, <clears throat> harmonious environment. And she said, well, what do I get? <coughs> and I said, well, you're greed type, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, you get a hovel. <laughs> and she went, why do I get a hovel? That's not fair. I don't want a hovel. And I said, that's why you get the hovel. That's why that's yours. So... There's a whole series of uh, things that Buddha Gosa looks at to help one determine the, the personality or temperament of the practitioner in regard to these three potential categories. So he looks at things like uh, food preferences. Uh, for instance, he says aversive people tend to like you know, sour food. And So I don't know, next time you're going through the food line and looking at that sauerkraut, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know pickles you know that might be an indicator so he says how you move um, what, you, what your posture is like how you sweep the floor how you make your bed he says you know all these kinds of things you know these three types tend to do them uh, differently you know is this all fact is this all uh, completely accurate well probably not but I have to say uh, I recognize some truth in, in the descriptions. So, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example of how, how I notice, have noticed some of this stuff. And then we'll get into some of the particulars of, of each of these temperaments and uh, what practice approaches are uh, recommended for each one of them. So say one has a a retreat starting at the retreat center and the yogis are arriving. This is what I've noticed. So the, the people who are of the craving temperament will try to arrive a little bit early so that they can go into the hall and pick the best place to sit. Right. The people of the aversive type will come on time and will go into the hall because there are certain places they don't want to sit. <laughs> and the people of the deluded type will forget to go into the hall and then go in really late and have whatever is left to pick from in terms of seating. Okay. In in registering the delu- the uh, the greedy type or the craving type will make a request for a particular yogi job because they have checked out the list of potential yogi jobs and they know which one they want because it would be the least burdensome and the most pleasant. And the aversive person. Will know which ones they don't want to have, and the one that is deluded won't necessarily know they have to have a yogi job, and will be surprised <laughs> when somebody says there's a work period every day, right? so you you can see just a lot of a lot of things, you know, like when people go into the hall. If you take a look at what's going on in terms of what people bring uh, with them. So the craving type of people often have nice outfits. You know, they have color-coordinated matching outfits for meditation and probably, you know, a nice zabutan and, you know, a lovely shawl and, you know, they keep their place nice and tidy and then the more aversive people will, you know, have the things that they brought with them so that they, you know, won't feel pain, and they'll they'll keep it kind of together. But it, but if you look at how they fold their blanket after they're done, they probably don't. You know, maybe they'll. And then the the people who are more on the diluted type will often be. Um, their their place will be a little on the messy side, you know. That's where you're likely to find like the blown in Kleenexes and stuff <laughs> you know around and you know maybe their stuff is kind of bleeding over on the zabutan of the adjacent person and so it goes. So, you know, it ca- it can be interesting and even kind of amusing when you start to recognize some of the, some of these these patterns of uh of behavior. And when you look a little bit uh, deeper in, into the temperament, you, you can see further what's actually going on in people's subjective experience and how that can be worked with. So for people who are of a craving type of temperament, then um, wanting is the name of the game. So this in uh, Pali, this tendency of mind is called uh, loba. And it's characterized both by craving and by optimism, so what's that mean? Craving and optimism? Well, the optimistic part of being uh, <coughs> of a craving temperament is that the the being still thinks that there's some jackpot out there that could happen if you just get like get the right stuff, you know whether it's the right experience or the right information or the right place to sit or the right partner or the right that you know like there's this karmic jackpot that's up for uh up for coming down if you just pull that go and get it lever enough times it's gonna all like the coins will fall into the lap so that's the optimistic part of it right so this Tendency looks for what's pleasant and wants to hold on to it and to enhance it. It also, the flip side of that is it wants to foreclose what's unpleasant and move from uh, pleasure to pleasure. So sense desire is part of this and one is on the lookout for what's beautiful and satisfying and intriguing. So unpleasantness is seen as a problem to solve or to get away from, and neutral vedana is not interesting. So, <clears throat> so this is very much keyed into pleasant vedana, and it often refers. Uh, one often refers to unpleasant things as negative. Like people will talk about, you know, negative negative meaning it doesn't have this this positive valence of pleasant feeling tone so there's a wanting and a thirsting and a satisfaction seeking in it so if you know you looked at look at some of the associative words you'd say like lust gluttony comparing and competing for the best or the the highest uh, looking for opportunities to to get something, clinging, attaching, craving, lusting, thirsting, holding on. These would all be appropriate notes to make if this is what's going on in the mind stream. Right, if this was unfolding in real time. Those are some of the notes that you would probably be making if you were working in a way where you're right on top of the experience. So in practice meetings. Uh, people often express what they want to be happening, right? There's a longing for cer- for certain things. So the, the mind can be kind of sticky and wanting to hold on to, to things if it's going well. And there's often a conflation of things going well with things being pleasant, which as we continue on through practice and through cycles of practice, and if if you look at some of the deeper levels of practice and you start recognizing that there are cycles where the characteristic of dukkha is right in your face, well, the chance of it being pleasant all the way to the bottom are slim. (laughs) So um, There can be a tendency to not want to practice with difficulty because it doesn't like the unpleasantness of it. And an idea that that satisfaction is inherent if only there was the right object or the right practice being done. So with this sometimes there's a desire to uh, uh, create an exper- experience something that's big. You know, a big blowout inside or a big opening. And one of the interesting things, and and this kind of feeds back into this idea about uh, greed or craving, being optimistic, is people may not recognize that this is actually a state of suffering. So the tendency of mind is just to think that you haven't gotten it yet. You know, the big shower of coins from the the cosmic uh, machine. So, it can be hard to recognize this as a state of dukkha. So, the balancing and correct, uh, um, uh, repatterning that can be useful for somebody who has this as a dominant temperament is uh, renunciation, generosity, uh, doing the five daily reflections. Uh, Inclining the mind to notice the end of things, i.e. the passing away of things, the impermanence of things. Um, Taking the refuges, doing the 32 parts of the body meditation, and practicing with difficulty. But, you know, you can see that this is encouraging the being to, to turn the mind to practice in the direction that it doesn't want to practice. And this is uh, an aspect of the Buddhist teaching that we see in a number of different ways where the the being is actually called on or encouraged to go upstream in terms of its natural tendencies or propensities, right? So if you're a real lustful type of person, for instance, if one is a lustful type of person, um, you, by, you might be given the 32 parts of the body uh, teaching by uh, a classical monastic teacher, for instance, where you would basically deconstruct this physicality into visual images of all the different uh, ways the, the body is put together you know hair of the head, hair of the body nails, teeth you know <laughs> um, and you, you can see over time uh, yeah that could probably help squeeze some of the lustful tendency um, out of its uh, more florid state so if one has uh, this craving tendency as the dominant uh, way that delusion is expressed within the system and practices in this kind of upstream way, it can actually ripen into faith. It can actually ripen into faith where the mind retains its appreciation for, for beauty but, instead, but starts to see the beauty in the truth of the path and the rapture uh, of the Dharma and starts to understand that there are higher happinesses other than just holding on to um, pleasant sensory experiences in real time. So there's a whole part of the, the practice path that leads us in the direction of increasing uh, pleasure and happiness of a wholesome way. But in order to find the doorway for that, we need to not be sticky in relationship to some of these more basic sensory arisings. So when I think of a, a person who uh, has a craving kind of mind, who's who's really developed it, some of the images that come up for me, for instance, is somebody who takes uh, joy and delight and happiness, for instance, in uh, bringing people together who they think might be good friends, or somebody who delights in preparing... For instance, a beautiful meal for friends and family. Or somebody who finds a, a great deal of um, joy in the simplicity of being on retreat and being content with what's offered. Okay, let's talk about the aversive temperament. So, not liking is the name of this particular game here. So this is called dosa, dosa. So this type notices unpleasantness, which may be plentiful. <laughs> so I, I actually wonder whether this particular temperament experiences more unpleasantness than other types does. I don't know the answer to that, but there definitely is the experience of unpleasantness and the mind doesn't like it. Well, who would like it? It's unpleasant, right? But in this particular case, it wants to get rid of this and it may move to attack or flee these kinds of experiences. So this kind of mind may swing to pleasure-seeking in reaction to an experience of uh, unpleasantness. But often um, it will find fault with whatever new experience presents itself, (laughs) even if it's a pleasant one. When it's in this mode, when it's really stuck in this groove. So there may be uh, a kind of suspicion or unease with pleasantness itself and a reluctance to let your guard down in relationship to it. So this is an an interesting to know know or notice sometimes in your practice because a lot of people have this experience and it can be quite surprising to them the first few times they notice it that sometimes the mind can have a distrust of or actually a dislike in regard to pleasantness. Especially if it has come to the conclusion that it's unreliable and that it it goes away. Eh, I don't want it, you know, it's kind of like... Eh. Yeah, like eh. So, there's a tendency to uh, want to keep away a correct experience which uh, it finds to be problematic. So, there is a ex- strong experience of a lack of satisfaction with things which often turns to deficiency analysis and a desire to correct what's perceived as mistaken, inadequate, or wrong. Right? Like there's something wrong with this experience, or there's something wrong with this meal, or there's something wrong with me, or there's something wrong with you, or there's something wrong with the universe, or... uh, so often in practice meetings, people will um, uh, kind of complain about what's happening and attach blame to the description. So, so uh, people will come and say, "Well, nah, 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 nah. yeah, uh-huh," <laughs> but but like it's a problem. Like, it's a problem. What's happening is is a problem. But why? Because it's it's unpleasant. It's not wanted, and it's not what's expected, often. So, you know, in undeveloped people of this type, they find the source of this unpleasantness or difficulty to be something in the environment, or in others, or in the self, which caused the aversion to arise. So some of the states that could be noted when this is operating strongly in the mind might be things like anger, frustration, uh, blaming, annoyance, irritation, fear, depression, sadness. And if the mind isn't looking closely, there's a tendency to think that the uh, dissatisfaction is inherent in the object. Right. We're talking about the craving type previously. They believe like there's some, something, you know, satisfaction in the thing. And if they can just get the right thing or hold on to the pleasant thing, that's the fix. So the aversive type of mind or the mind that's operating strongly out of aversion takes, um, takes the leap that if I'm experiencing something unpleasant or unwanted or difficult, that there's something wrong with the object. You know, there's something wrong with this body sensation or there's something wrong with me that I'm having this particular state. So then the, the mind wants to make the wrong thing stop. So one interesting thing about people who have more of this aversive conditioning is often people who are aversively uh, conditioned know that they're suffering. So this is actually an upside to being this particular type because you're not mistaking uh, pleasantness for uh, an indicator of correct direction. You recognize that there's suffering. And because there is suffering, there's a a strong impetus to do something about it. Now the mind has a tendency to like... Push against, lash out against, try to get away from fix and all that in relationship to the suffering um, that it's experiencing. And we'll try all of those strategies, of course, but it recognizes that okay, there's suffering, and so there's motivation to practice. So it said of this particular type that some because of the clarity that's uh inherent in it also is that sometimes it's possible to make fairly quick uh, progress because there is a kind of clarity of mind it's just it it gets applied in a a a dukkha ridden way so it's seeing dukkha all the time or often in this experience so it's seeing dukkha, it's seeing one of the three characteristics so the, the balancing kind of practices for this particular temperament would be uh, something lo- along the lines of loving-kindness and uh, metta, compassion practice, uh, encouragement of the system to relaxation, mindfulness of mind. In other words, taking a look at what the mind is making out of its experience and... Uh, you know, checking in for, for hindrances in terms of the attitude of mind that's meeting experience. Noticing joy and contentment. You know, actually catching yourself having a pleasant experience and enjoying it and letting that in. Uh, patience is also an important piece here. So, this tendency of mind, it is said, ripens into discerning wisdom. So, the third of these temperaments is uh, uh, delusion or the deluded uh, temperament which highlights disconnection and speculation and misinterpretation. So, This is called uh, MOHA, M-O-H-A. So in this case, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going on and what one should do and what should be going on. So there may be a good amount of neutral Vedana here for this type but the mind generally doesn't notice that. So awareness can be fuzzy in a certain kind of way and not grounded in the body or the senses in real time. So if one is not grounded in the body or grounded in the senses, then the question is, where is awareness? If If you're not... In contact with the five-sense doors, that leaves only one. <laughs> and it's the most tricky one of all to practice with directly. Although it's an important one to learn how to practice with, right? The mind door, of course, is the seat of our uh, identity often. And also is the place where the thinking and spirit Uh, imagining and uh, remembering and all of that takes place often in a very unconscious kind of way so working with the five senses of the body it's a lot clearer whether you're connected to experience or you're not connected right if you're doing walking meditation and you're feeling your feet. You're there in real time. You're present in real time. You're receiving those sensations as as they arise with that that sense contact. So it's it's kind of clearer about what's happening. So. Sometimes people who have this tendency of mind might have a lot of I- uh, ideas about what should be happening based on what's been read or heard from others. So this can bring with it perplexity and doubt and speculation and confusion. So I, so some ways I've seen this in practice as people will say, well, you know, I've heard there there, there are these different maps of practice, you know, There's the boomy model that they have in, in, um, uh, you know, this school of Buddhism, and then you've got the progressive insight model that you know is discussed in Mahasi Sayadaw, and then Kula Dasa says, you know, this is another model, and you know their minds just kind of like take up this kind of thing and like swirl swirl and swirl and swirl and swirl. And um, the practice can become very uh, disconnected from anything that's grounding and reorienting. So you can see that one of the tendencies of mind here would be doubt, right, skeptical uh, doubt. So one of the hallmarks of doubt, of course, is lots of thinking that doesn't, go anywhere useful but just kind of like questions that circle around on themselves without any available information to answer them which of course can create a kind of disembodiment and agitation in the mind that then opens the door to all the rest of the hindrances so So, in practice meetings, for instance, it would be a not unusual thing to have um, difficulty in describing what's happening during the sitting and walking periods or other times. So, you know, somebody will come in and there will be a conversation, they'll be talking about something, but in terms of the mind uh, easily being able to be specific about what it's knowing, that's tough. So, there might be a preference to talk kind of generically about things, and you know, the the conversation will kind of flow between you know, like the past and the future, and with a, a lot of speculation, and without uh, notice of change of subject. So, but the being um, themselves, if delusion is dominant, often can be kind of like. Kind of easy going and you know m- maybe a little on the floaty floaty side you know it's all good no worries you know while the uh, aversive person is going no worries no worries what are you talking about no worries don't you realize you know this get this and this <laughs> and the you know the the person that's more of the craving temperament is like oh you could be getting you know you could be getting this you know you could be doing this you could you know, you're missing it, this, this is within reach. Yeah, where's your resume? Oh, yeah. So, so at this point you could see, well, what would be balancing to this particular tendency of mind when it's present, you know, whether it's present as a uh, temperament, or whether it's present in the practice at a certain period of time. Well... here you're going to want to incline people to ground in the body and the senses. Right? Because it's non-speculative. It points the attention to something particular. And with this going on, this is a place where noting in, in particular could be very useful. Because you're asking the mind to, repeatedly asking the mind to just perceive what's there, just what's going on. Keep it simple. What's happening now? What's right on top of the experience pile? Hearing, 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 hearing. Not liking, not liking, not liking. <laughs> not sure, not sure, not sure. It, it can be actually a, a significant step forward in practice when the mind starts to recognize when it isn't uh, sure or clear about what it's experiencing? Can name that and notice that as particular state, right? Not sure. Don't know. Wondering. Right? By picking up those kinds of labels uh, and not uh, having an unskillful relationship to doubt, you reground the system. And uh, this type benefits from a pleasant and safe kind of surrounding. And uh, the Masudi Maga says, well, this particular type not only should have a nice place, but they should have like a panoramic view. Mm-hmm. Right? There should, <laughs> Which is a way of saying there should be no obstacles in the way of what they, they perceive, right? It shouldn't be like a crowded in kind of, you know... Uh, junky kind of environment with a lot of stuff around. No, they would. It would be much better for them if you know it was like open horizons, open horizons with not much stuff because it just gets confusing. So this type, when it develops and uh, evolves, ripens into equanimity, and You can see why that might be the case, right? Because this particular type, their issue is um, getting connected with what experience is. But they don't really have a strong pattern of being for or against anything, right? They're not particularly reactive against stuff. They're just kind of disconnected and so there often is as i mentioned earlier a lot of neutral vedana there and when they start to recognize okay uh neutral vedana is a thing it's not a not it's not a not thing then they're plugged in then they're present and the mind's there in a in a state of balance so it's important to realize that all of these tendencies of mind are just that, they're tendencies. Right? They're not a me, they're not a my, they're not an I, they're not a fatal defect. And each of them have this, uh, this potentiality. There's a kind of uh, opening into beauty—that's part of the craving type. There's a kind of clarity of mind that is part of the aversive type. There's a kind of acceptance of or non-objection to what's happening—that's part of the deluded type. So the key thing for this is to get on the upside of these tendencies of mind by recognizing when they're they're present in the practice and learning how to work with them when they arise in the immediate sense. So in the immediate sense on the cushion, the way you would be working with these tendencies of mind is to recognize them. And then if the mind is present enough and is uh, knowing them with enough clarity to actually take them as a meditation object rather than operating from them and trying to attend to something else. You know what I mean by this? So say you're sitting on your cushion and you're working with the, the rising and falling of the breath, rising and falling of the abdomen. So you're sitting there, you're working with the rising and falling of the abdomen. Then there arises this thought, I suck at this. I don't think that this is going anywhere. I should be better at this because I've been doing it for 10 years. And with this are fairly strong emotions of discontent, dissatisfaction, maybe sadness, maybe anger, all the rest of it. So here's the practice question for you. So at this point in the practice, do you continue to attend to the rising and falling of the breath at the abdomen when this strong state is present? What do you think? Probably not. Probably the skillful thing to do is to recognize oh, this is the hindrance of say, aversion Oh, this is unpleasant. Let me turn my mind to this state now and take it up as uh, a meditation object. Investigating the state in its particulars until it subsides enough to return to the rising and falling at the abdomen or until uh, it passes away. So in this kind of way, you're taking some the wholesome qualities of mind, mindfulness and uh, resolve and patience and uh, faith and a number of other things, and you're using them to acknowledge something that could be an impediment to your practice if it's not seen and not practiced with, with skill. And you're actually working with it in a way where it's just another arising within the field of mindful awareness, right? So when it's like that, when the mind recognizes the experience and uh, has some skill in working with it directly, is this a hindrance or not? So it's a hindrance in the sense that it's on the hindrance list, but is it an impediment to practice? It's not. It's not an impediment to practice. And the same is uh, true for uh, any of the other arisings that might arise uh, for people who have these particular temperaments. So is the arising of, uh, say you're sitting and attending to the rising and falling of the abdomen, and suddenly there comes into the mind, I want some espresso. Well... I wonder where I could get something. Oh, I've heard there's a place in town now that has it. But where? when could I go down there? Oh, if I went down at lunch, that's not enough time. Well, maybe if I went down like later in the morning I could go down there and come back. But what if the staff saw me? <laughs> what would they tell the teacher? Right. So. The, the, so when that arises does the mind is the mind experiencing one of the hindrances yeah it's experiencing sense desire should should the mind continue to a- attend to the rising and falling at the abdomen if this other state has become the predominant experience and is now either competing with or has overwhelmed the sensations of the breath at the abdomen what do you think? No. One should instead bring this arising into the, the, into the practice by including it in the field of mindful awareness and practicing directly with it. Right? Oh, this is sense-desire. Oh, this is thinking. This is seeing. This is wanting. This is enjoying. This is seeing, this is thinking, this is craving, right? And working with that until it subsides or uh, uh, disappears. So you you can see how these connect. These kinds of things can actually become stepping stones. So what would be the problem in trudging along and trying to continue with the rising and falling when this other thing is going on? It's become uh, dominant. Well, one, one thing about that is now you've got split focus, right? There's two things that are kind of going on. There's what you think you're trying to attend to, and then there's the other thing that's on top of it, obscuring uh, that field of sensory experience. But it's not being acknowledged, but it is coloring the kind of attention that you're bringing to the breath. Never had the experience of trying to like be with the sensations of the breath when you're in a state of mad, like a strong state of anger or something. Rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling. What can you say more about the sensations? Rising, falling, rising, right? So there's a very... Uh, Aikido way that this uh, this practice can work, right Th- through this very uh, sometimes surprising manner of including uh, uh, through recognition and uh, direct practice with some of these entrances. So it's a, it's an important piece of it. So there's the. Clear comprehension piece of uh, wise strategies to work with these tendencies of mind. So I discussed that, that part when I was talking about, oh, particular kinds of practices or way of practicing that people of these different temperaments might take up, right? That's the big picture thing. Like if you're an aversively conditioned person, doing, doing meta will be really beneficial for you. Right? So that's the big picture piece of it. If you're a diluted temperament person, picking up noting might be really useful to you, right? If you're uh, uh, a craving kind of temperament, then um, working in a way where um, you're noticing impermanence might be a really useful way to work. So that's the big picture framework about what kind of practices you might take up or ways to practice that might be beneficial. But And it all comes down to what's happening on the cushion in real time and whether the mind recognizes it in real time and uh, is willing and able to work with it in a way that's skillful. And sometimes the way to work with it that's skillful might be like a total redirection (laughs) or an interruption or going to get a cup of tea. But eventually eventually the mind starts to learn that whatever arises in practice is a conditioned arising it's not an identity it's not a fatal flaw or a you know a, a asset that we should uh claim with pride it's just the way causes and conditions come together and the seeing of the changeability of things the arising and passing away of objects of meditation, really enforces in an experiential kind of way an understanding of the, the three characteristics. And when the mind has seen the three characteristics enough times, whether it's seeing the three characteristics in craving, or it's seeing them in it in aversion, or it's seeing it in delusion, or it's seeing it in uh, metta, or it's seeing it... Uh, with a body sensation, if it sees that enough, it moves in the direction of wisdom and it starts to be able to generalize um, that insight. And that's a circumstance from which wisdom arises. It starts to re-educate itself about what wise relationship is with all of these things that Come to be understood as conditioned arisings that come and go. So we bring these wise and wholesome things to practice, including to these things that um, sometimes are not so wise or wholesome, but that's okay. This is. This is part of the, the purification of mind that the Buddha talks about. So in this kind of way, these tendencies of mind actually get the delusion squeezed out of them. And then you're, you're left with the, uh, the upside, with the beautiful uh, aspect of their uh, propensities.